In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht get blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcast and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Welcome to episode 25 of Scottish Blethers with Liz Lister and Helen Houston. And I'm Susan Brown. So just before we get into what we're going to be talking about, I just wanted to give people a reminder that coming up on Thursday the 11th of March at 8pm GMT, which is 3pm EST, we have a virtual tour being delivered by our very own Helen on the wonderful borough of Curis that dates way back to the 16th century and has had so much going in and it's still got so much character. If you would like to book up to this tour, it's £15 per device which can be paid by PayPal and to book just drop us an email to scottishbletherspodcast at gmail.com So Liz what are you going to be covering this episode? Oh Susan it's another one that's going to have you and me going at loggerheads (laughs) (laughs) and we're going for the the shooting and the stockering. No, this one was, I chose this topic because we have a little stoat in the garden and the stoat in the garden is just losing his winter white coat at the moment. He's looking a little bit bedraggled as he turns back to brown. And that reminded me that on the 1st of March this year, just a few days ago, there was a very important law passed in the Scottish government. And so my theme for today is the mountain hare. Now, I'm very fortunate. I live in the Cairngorms National Park, which has got some of the most beautiful countryside in the world, especially in winter when the Scottish Highlands look incredible when they're covered in snow. And if you're lucky that when you're out walking, you may just spot one of Scotland's most iconic species, Lepus timidus, or the mountain hare. And it's Britain's only truly Arctic mammal. So it's also called the Arctic hare as well. Unlike the brown hares that you'll find in the lowlands of Scotland, which were probably brought here by the Romans or the Celts, the mountain hare has been native to the Scottish Highlands since the end of the last ice age. It's incredibly well adapted to thriving in the harsh mountain environment. And if you want to spot one, you'd better have good eyesight because this hare is famed for its camouflage. In summer, their coats are greyish-brown colour with a tinge of blue, making them very hard to spot against the heather moorland. But in winter, their pelage, or their coat, changes to almost completely white to blend in with their snowy surrounding, giving them protection from predators such as foxes, stoats, and their arch-enemy the golden eagle. So to avoid detection, they've learned the trick of standing completely still for long periods of time. As eagles have eyesight up to eight times sharper than ours, 
but they can't spot motionless prey. When the coast is clear and the hare takes off, you're likely to see this natural athlete racing down the snowy slopes at the speed of an Olympic downhill skier, often zigzagging, leaping distances of up to three metres in a single bound on their powerful hind legs. But perhaps in spite of all these natural adaptations that equip them so well for their harsh environment, it may well turn out that their greatest asset in the fight for survival is their cute, charismatic appearance. For once again, these beautiful animals are at the centre of a battle between conservationists and animal welfare organisations on the one hand, and estate owners and land managers who support the management of heather moorlands for shooting and stalking. For years, mountain hares have routinely been culled by gamekeepers who argue that their numbers need to be controlled on managed moorland to limit the damage that they do to young trees and fragile montane habitats through their grazing. Perhaps more controversially, they believe that the hares can be vectors of disease that infect the red grouse, especially a tick-borne virus with the interesting name louping ill and therefore culling ensures that there are more birds available to be shot for sport. A claim which is of course rejected by the conservationist group who claim that there's no diseases spread by the hares. Mountain hare killing wasn't monitored and was completely unregulated during the open season from August February. It's known that population numbers go in 10-year cycles, but following a number of government reports, concerns began to surface about severe recent declines in the number of this native species, and these were strongly related to the culls. Claims were made that urgent action was needed if the future conservation status of mountain hares was to be secure. Those who argue in favour of culling claim that the hares thrive on managed heather moorland and are struggling badly elsewhere. So if you remove the heather moorland or you stop the culling, then you actually do them damage in the long term. In December 2014, they drew up a joint statement across a range of agencies which agreed that there would be a voluntary restraint on large culls to ensure that the conservation status of the mountain hare wasn't in any way jeopardised. But conservation groups always feared that this would be ineffective. And in 2016, graphic videos of images of groups of armed gamekeepers using all-terrain vehicles to access remote hillsides and shoot the hares in a brutal military-style operation began to surface. And the public began to get outraged. How dare they do this to our little hares? So in May 2017, the Scottish Parliament voted to ban the unlicensed culling of mountain hares and granted them protection protective species status after a petition started by the Green MSP gathered over 22,000 signatures. She said that the government had given into pressure from conservation groups to protect this iconic native species. The ban on the unlicensed culling of mountain hares came into effect from the 1st of March and it looks as if the mountain hare is safe but ironically it might not be the gamekeepers that it's got to fear because there's a growing concern that global warming is reducing the amount of snowfall in the UK and the poor old mountain hare isn't keeping up with it. So for 35 days of the year, it's white when the heather is brown and it's not adapting. And they think this might be because A, global warming is happening so quickly, or B, the gene pool isn't sufficiently large to allow it to adapt. So 
there may be other concerns that the mountain hare has got to face. And that's it. Susan, say your piece. Where do I start? Jeezy peeps. That's a very one-sided view of things, I have to say. And I tried to be fair. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Let me think. If, if, if I asked some of my estate-based friends to comment on what you've just been talking about, I'm not sure that they would say it was fair. Really, if I'm honest. So, mountain hares. They are very pretty. Actually, I think you'll find there are more mountain hares on keepered estates than there are on unkeepered estates. So that suggests that maybe That's the true. keepered estates are doing something right. What are they doing right? Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to manage a number of different variables for the good of all the wildlife. If you think that a gamekeeper is only out for the grouse or the deer, you'd be wrong. They care deeply about the land that they're looking after and they're looking after it for past generations and future generations and quite often sons of gamekeepers go on to become gamekeepers themselves so they're not about this just for the grouse however there is a commercial reality that says if we want these people to do what is effectively conservation work then they need to find some way to pay for it and one way to pay for that is to have shoots now, the worry about the hares is that they are highly liable to ticks. And if you don't control them, the tick population will get huge. And I've seen photos of hares whose eyes are all totally gunged up with ticks and they can't see out them because of the massive ticks that there are. Now, the ticks don't just affect the birds, the tick affect the deer. And also the sheep, because the sheep that are out on the hills are used as a way to mop up the ticks. So what the gamekeepers do is they try to control the numbers of hares. They don't take them all out. That's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to control them so they can keep on top of these things. But one major challenge to birds and hares thriving on the moors is the ability of the gamekeepers to be able to use legal traps to control predators, whether that be your friendly stoat, whether it be rooks and ravens and crows, which of course will peck out the eyes of sheep and lambs and stuff and, you know, totally ruin things for the farmers because these predators go for everything else as well. So if we've got more predators, they're going to be going after your leverets, your baby um, hares. And this is part of the problem. It needs to be looked at as a whole rather than one individual issue. So there you go. Stick it up for the gamekeepers and land managers. I agree with you on that. I, and it's undoubtedly the case that the mountain hares thrive on heather moorland. You know, so without the heather moorland, if we allow it to revert to forestry and rewild, then that is going to adversely affect the number of, of hares. They're not going to thrive on it. The one thing that I would take issue with is that there have been two scientifically sound reports which have indicated that there's a massive decline in the mountain hare population. So I think that what two sides here would agree on is that it needs very careful monitoring. There needs to be sound measurements of the numbers and ways of identifying what is causing the fall in numbers if numbers are declining, as they say. So I think that it was public pressure, and that's why I came back to, I think, the fact that it's it's charismatic and it's such a beautiful creature when you see it, that there's you've got much more public opinion rising up to protect it than you have 
if it was the rat population that were suddenly being culled. And I, I think part of the challenge is it's bringing up a bit of a conflict between rural and urban-based people and urban-based people that are used to doing all the lobbying and doing all this kind of stuff, whereas rural-based people just got on with the job and do the job. And what I worry about is the voice of those who actually work every day, 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year, that work out in these areas is not being heard and is not being listened to because of an emotive response to someone goes, oh, look at the pretty little baby here. Oh, we can't have that being killed. You know, so I think we need to find that balance between conservation, but also listening to those that work the land. And I don't think that's happening right now. It's finding your way through it. I mean, I think that the days of, I'm sure you won't be happy to hear this, but I think the days of managed moorland, for better or for worse, are limited because of all the pressures that they're coming on to, not least for the moment, the sale of these large shooting estates to people who are interested in rewilding them for the biodiversity rather than the shooting. Exactly. And of course, by rewilding, by putting more trees, you're improving one potential environment whilst degrading those that live on open moorland. If there's open if there's no more open moorland and there's trees, that's great for those that live in trees. But hey, foxes live in woods and stuff and they're going to come out and take all the eggs and stuff from the birds that you're trying to save. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you and it's not in the interest of the mountain here either. So it leads on to an interesting topic which I will, it's one of my favourite topics but I haven't actually come on to it yet which is who owns Scotland? Who is, is buying up the land in Scotland? So that's to come. So no doubt we'll have an interesting Great. debate. Helen, you're sitting very quiet here. <laughs> I've been very quiet because I have to say I have only ever once seen a mountain here. And I really was taken by it. It was fantastic. It was many, many years ago, we were travelling up from Stirling up to Boat of Garten. And we decided to go up via roads that were not the A9, which is the main spine. So this was really going right off into the moors and it was snowing. And we saw these mountain hares just jumping around in the snow it was absolutely beautiful so from a point of view of oh they're just stunning in their own environment and then also listening to both of you about what is happening within their own environment is definitely something that is gives food for thought yes and it's part of this you know people think of the highland countryside as quiet it's a hotbed of conflict people trying to do their job (laughs) 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 Helen, over to you. Right. The kilt is what I'm going to talk about. And people think of Scotland, they imagine three things, haggis, bagpipes and kilts. Well, I'm going to talk about the kilt. And it's known as the Scottish national dress. And kilts are recognised the world over. Scottish people proudly sport kilts as a tribute to their heritage. Yet, It wasn't always the case. For many years, the kilt was the dress of the Highlander and the Lowlander tended to look down on this sort of dress and the people who wore it as unsophisticated and uncouth. The kilt, like most items of clothing, has undergone a process of evolution over the centuries. Starting life as the belted plaid or the great kilt, the philomore, one end of the length of material was pleated and held with a belt round the waist, while the other end formed a cloak against the weather. The belted plaid had many advantages. It was warm, it allowed freedom of movement, it dried out quickly, 
and it could provide adequate overnight blanketing. And you may be familiar with this early version of the kilt from the film Braveheart, where William Wallace dons a belted plaid. On the other hand, the small kilt or the walking kilt, the pila bag, which is essentially the bottom half of the great kilt, became popular in the Highlands and the Northern Lowlands by about the mid-1700s. Although the great kilt or the belted plaid continued to be worn, there is a suggestion that the small kilt came into being for practical purposes. Many Highlanders were employed in the iron furnaces around Inverness and the great kilt was found to be too cumbersome for the work. So the owner, Mr Rawlinson, and his partner, Ian MacDonald, chief of the clan MacDonald, designed, if that's the right word, the small kilt which they wore themselves. The design of the small kilt was adopted by the Highland Regiment of the British Army and this then passed into civilian usage. The Act of Prescription in 1746 was designed to rob the Highlander of everything that made them who they were and that included their dress. This act was fiercely enforced. The penalties, if found wearing any kind of Scottish garb, were six months imprisonment for the first offence, and if convicted again, it could mean transportation to the colonies for seven years, presumably as an indentured slave. But in 1782, the act was repealed. What we know now today as kilts and tartan mostly comes from the romantic revival of the Highland dress in the early 1800s, thanks to Sir Walter Scott and the visit of King George IV to Edinburgh in 1822. Kilts were the order of the day then. In the 1800s, kilts were normally made with five yards of material, but with the advent of machinery, new techniques and more complex designs, this all meant more cloth. Pleating the kilt to the set also required more cloth. Pleating to the set means that the completed kilt would be the same design as the tartan on the front on the apron. And today we have the eight yards kilt. The kilt is still very popular and is often worn very informally with a t-shirt and walking boots, for instance. It is worn to international sports events as well as to more formal occasions. At a Scottish wedding, I would say that over half the male guests will be wearing the kilt. But one of the things I like is when some of the corporate events hire complete outfits for their male attendees for the gala dinner. Something happens to these men, often from the US, when they don the kilt. They seem to stand taller, increase in confidence. I just love it. But I'm keeping an eye out for any kilt faux pas to catch them before the wearer embarrasses themselves in front of their colleagues. So Susan and Liz, have you any thoughts about wearing the kilt? Can't beat a man in a kilt. I won't let <laughs> I won't let my husband wear a kilt because I said the last time I saw legs like that there was a message tied to them. <laughs> oh Liz, that was cruel. <laughs> I just love the kilt, and most people look really good in a kilt. You know, I think sometimes the young lads could before they're kind of fully formed, if you like, look a bit thin in a kilt, but you know, I think most people look fantastic and I like the way you could adapt the wearing of the kilt nowadays to meet any occasion. I'd just say about 50% of men at Scottish weddings would wear kilts, but I think, Susan, probably where you are, it'll be higher than that in Highland Perthshire. Oh yes, much higher than that. Those wearing trousers are tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Well, it was a traditional yeah. 21st present was to get your kilt yeah. outfit for your birthday for your 21st. And then, you know, as you got older and as your shape changed, as you got older, all you had to do was let a couple of pleats out. 
Very forgiving. Yes. Much easier for men than ladies. You'll have heard about the young lad who was out for a night out and he had his kilt on and it was a good night. And as he was staggering his way home, he thought, I'm just going to sit down for a little minute and have a rest against this tree. So he sat down with his back against the tree. And of course, within a few minutes, he was sound asleep, dead to the world. And that was him for the night. And then the next morning, there's two young French backpackers who'd left the hostel early to get a head start on the day. And they're walking along and they come across this guy sitting on the sitting beside the tree with his kilt on. And the one French mademoiselle says to, looks at the other one and goes, oh. And the other one looks at her back again and she says, do you think we should have a look? Mais certainement. So they bend over and they very delicately lift up his kilt to find the answer to the question that everyone wants to know. And they have a little giggle. <laughs> and then the one French mademoiselle takes a beautiful red ribbon from her hair and the other one holds up his kilt. And the female strategically ties the red ribbon and drops the kilt and they run on their way giggling. Well, the next morning, call of nature, the young lad wakens up and the first thing he has to do is to go behind the tree to relieve himself. He lifts up his kilt, he sees the red ribbon and he says, well, laddie, I don't know where you were last night, but you sure did win first prize. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, actually, just to kind of lay the myth of what what goes on under the kilt. It actually is the army that is to at fault for starting this what is what is worn and going commando style. Because they used to wear with the old kilt, they wore the sark, a long tailed shirt. And that shirt was tied just between their legs underneath. And that was their shirt was both their underwear. And then when the kilt was banned, they had to wear trousers. And of course, the long sark shirt was too long to go under the trousers. So they cut it, the cutty sark. And when they got back to wearing the kilt, the shirt was not long enough to be tied underneath and become their underwear. So they had to start wearing underwear under the kilt. Now, I would just like to give you a quote. So my other half is uh, Davidson. And he they've been going through the Davidson papers when they were clearing out their craft up in Caithness. And here is what he wrote, uh, what his, his, sorry, his great-great-uncle wrote. This is Lieutenant Colonel Davidson in 1915. And in response to a suggestion about kilt wearing, he said, the last idiotic request he made to me personally was that all men should be made to wear underwear with the kilt. Did you ever hear the like? I just told him no Highland regiment was prepared to wear underwear of any description. Yeah, and that was it. It was the army. It was the regiments because it became an offence. It was a court-martial offence if you were wearing anything under the kilt in the army because that was not traditional is what they thought. It does take some practice though, Helen. So I think it's one of those things that you have to warn your American visitors about <laughs> and teach them the proper way of sitting when they're sitting in a kilt, if they're going to go commando. <laughs> no, just that you've just given me a thought of what my word of the episode's going to be. Good. Thanks for that one, Helen. <laughs> I just think if you hire a kilt, the hire company will not be at all pleased if you go commando. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Finish the thoughts. Moving on quickly. Moving on. Susan. Okay, well, I'm going to be talking to you about an event that still happens 
to this day. Well, it didn't happen last year because of COVID, but I believe it's going to be running this year in the Highland Park, or just in the woods next door to me called Faskally Woods. And it's an event that has been going since 2002. It's called the Enchanted Forest. And it happens in October. It started off just being a couple of weeks and it's like a traditional sound and light show in the woods. However, over the years since 2002, it has been amazing. It has moved from strength to strength. It was originally started by Forestry and Land Scotland to get people into the woodland and more specifically round about Perthshire, which is why they held it in Dunkeld to start off with. And then it became bigger and bigger. So it moved up to Pitlochry in 2005. And this is where I live. Over the first 10 years, they had 150,000 visitors. So in total over 10 years. Now they're doing 80,000 visitors a season. So about two, two and a half thousand people a night. They've taken it from being two weeks long to being four weeks long. And it's wonderful. It kind of starts from about six o'clock at night. And what happens is that people will come into Pitlochry, they'll show their tickets and they'll get onto a bus that will take them out to the woods. And they can wander around. There's a lochan in the woods and you can do a figure of eight shape around it because there's a bridge in the middle of it. And it uses all the beautiful Scots pine, the beech, the oak, all these different kind of trees and it projects lights onto them and then they'll have some light installations as well. And then a number of times on the lock, they've had kind of a a wall of water spray put up and they project onto that with eagles and owls and fish that are jumping out the water from one side to the other. It's absolutely amazing what they do. So it's kind of a traditional thing. It's won a string of awards all across Scotland. And it was supposed to be the 20th anniversary year uh, last year, which of course is now this year. It's run by a community interest group, Community Trust, and they give money back to community projects in Highland Perthshire. And in 2019, they gave £33,500 to 26 different projects in Highland Perthshire to work with lots of different things, whether it be for the elderly, whether it be the local pipe band, whether it be the playgroup, all that kind of stuff. And it's really good. The woods themselves, well, they were created in the 19th century by, by Archibald Butter. And in there, he put European beech, Douglas fir, European larch, Norway spruce and Scots pine. But then the woods were bought over by the Forestry Commission or what is now Forestry and Land Scotland. And they had a training site for the foresters after the First World War, basically trying to work out what species they could put in and what they could move and would work together as they tried to increase the forestry cover in Scotland. Nowadays, there's 23 species of trees, and those include wild cherry and oak, and some of the trees there are over 200 years old. What they're doing now, they've not rested on the laurels. Forestry and Land Scotland are now trying to reduce or remove the rhododendrons because they are nominated as the number one invasive species in Scotland, and is trying to replace those by native hazel, willow, alder and aspen. So you don't just get an amazing sound and light show, you also get a wonderful walk through the woods and hopefully more people come back and visit it out with October. So have either of you been to the Enchanted Forest? I haven't been, but I have been in Pitlochry when the Enchanted Forest has been on. And the streets of Pitlochry being just 
full of very excited children waiting to get on the buses, you see, to go out to the Enchanted Forest. I've been to the forest when it hasn't been enchanted. You know, I've been at that Lochan you were describing outside of the dates of the Enchanted Forest. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful situation. Yeah, that tends to be my walk most days. I've never managed to get tickets for it. I've tried several years, but it's sold out months in advance. Yeah, you have. You kind of have to be in there early, especially if you want a weekend or if you want the earlier slots at night. The later slots tend to have availability during the week. And it, I don't think you ha- I think the last bus leaves the site about 10.30. So you can go later, especially if you're a photographer. I would suggest you go later because there's less people going around. But, you know, even with two and a half thousand people through it on a night, you don't really notice. I've worked as a steward there for a couple of seasons and I've been other years when I've not been stewarding and it's just it's just a lovely place to go and just so enchanting and you can get a mulled wine or a a can of juice or a hot chocolate when you're out in the woods and there's some food and then they usually have a marshmallow pit where a couple of the, the stewards will help you you know roast your marshmallow and have that as a as a little snack as well so it's, it's a lovely thing to do. And it's one of the events that at the minute is due to go ahead in October this year. So I'm looking forward to that. October. I hope it does. Got a good chance. Mm-hmm. Good. It's outdoors. So yeah, it's just getting people into the woods. That's the challenge. Yeah. Looking ahead, you know, October's within sight. You know, there does seem to be light appearing at the end of the tunnel. Let's hope that all these things begin to resurrect themselves again. So how about the word of the episode, ladies? Liz, would you like to kick us off? Well, I was talking about being out on the Highland hillsides in the freezing cold where it can be blowing a hoolie. So blowing a hoolie is a gale force wind in Scotland. And if you're out there, you need to be warmly wrapped up if you're going to survive it when it's blowing a hoolie. Brilliant. And it has been these past few days blowing a hoolie. My word of the day is gutties. Now gutties you might know better as sand shoes. That might not mean anything to you. Gym shoes or trainers. Plimsolls. Yes. Very often nowadays you'll see people wearing kilts when they're informally dressed with their gutties on or their gutties, without pronouncing the T's. See, to me, gutties were for going in the water. Yes. So if you're if you're away on your holidays to the beach, you'd wear your gutties because it was okay for them to get wet and dirty and everything else. So that was like your sand shoes or your gym shoes. Yes. Your gutties were part of your gym kit. So you needed your gutties, your gym shoes, and your gym knickers when I was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my word of the episode is more of a phrase of the episode. And thank you for reminding me of it, the two of you, when you were talking about kilts and what blokes have under it and corporate events, you know, we don't... If it's your own kilt, it's okay to wear no underwear, but if it's if it's a higher one, maybe not. And it's about feeling the air around your hurdies. <laughs> so... <laughs> So if you're feeling the air around your hurdies, it's kind of, it's a bit like, well, it's basically going commando and you feel the air around your, your thighs and your backside. Um, so feel the air around your hurdies. Your hurdies like a distant hill. A little bit of burns. To a haggis. So just like that, ladies, we've come to the end of another episode. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the move from me. 
And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.